Welcome to Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Amira and Jessica, and we're going to hype all the sports we've been following. In this case, horse racing, tennis, and softball. And honestly, we could have picked five more with all that's underway in global sports right now. But before all that, it's been a very difficult couple of weeks. Um, politically, news, oh, it's tough, tough, tough stuff. On top of it, many of us are dealing with the fact that our children are now out of state control. Um, They're out of school. It's rough. It's rough stuff. So I find myself between hustling, looking at Twitter more often for levity um, than anything else since the attention span doesn't really work. Um, What are you suggesting that people might follow for a little bit of levity in the world, Amira? Yeah, I'm a sucker for all the content that the Las Vegas Aces put out, particularly Kelsey Plum and Erica Hamby's friendship, Sid Colson, of course, Mm -hmm. um, Asia Wilson. All of them are hilarious, but most recently, uh, Kelsey took um, Erica's daughter, Amaya, for a play date, apparently. And instead of, like, taking her somewhere and playing with her, they rolled up on Erica. who's supposed to be, like, child-free with water balloons. And they bombed her with water balloons while she was, like, eating brunch. And when she, like, tweeted about it, a lot of people were like, LOL, but, like, also, did that really happen? And then Kelsey posted the video of them attacking her with water balloons, and it was hilarious. And their, like, pretend enemy-frenemy status is always fun to follow on the interwebs. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, I've been following Kevin Durant. (laughs) You love him on Twitter. It is hilarious. I mean, the fact that he spends the offseason doing this, like like really confronting people with just a few hundred followers and just like wanting to sincerely argue with them about basketball takes is amazing. Like I've never quite seen a male athlete. I've seen women engage in maybe more deep ways, you know, um, but and him going after Stephen A. Smith had a tweet that, you know, perhaps Michael Jordan was bad for basketball or maybe Steph Curry was bad for basketball. And Kevin Durant was like, you're what's bad for basketball. And that was so satisfying to me. I feel like Kevin Durant and I might be kind of friends now. Um, not clear, but I want to do like a basketball take that he responds to. So I'm just like working on it in my head because that would be really exciting. But it's hilarious. You should go check it out. He has way too much time on his hands. I don't know why he's not on a yacht in Monte Carlo or something right now, but it's just so funny. Um, And then the other one is Union Drip. If you don't follow Union Drip, you have to. It is all the trade union organizers' fashion choices around the country. So all the Staten Island Amazon workers that, you know what I mean, like organized recently, it follows all of their like fashion choices. And then it historically like digs up photographs of unionists in the past and like what they've decided to wear. It's hilarious. Jessica, what about you? I want to give a shout out to Spencer Hall, whose handle on Twitter is EDSBS. Every day should be Saturday, I think is what it stands for. That used to be the blog that he ran. And I just think Spencer in general is is a funny guy. He also does these amazing threads on Twitter where he 
puts his favorite TikToks that he's been watching for enjoyment. So like those threads are great. And then I just need to shout out this one specific tweet that gave me so much joy last weekend. Um, speaking of Monte Carlo, they did the Grand Prix F1 and Ferrari, the Charles Leclerc is the Monaco hometown boy. And he was pole position and it's very, very hard. It's a tight, tight track, very hard to pass. So like if you're in pole position, you are most likely to win. Uh, and then Ferrari just fucked up the pit stops. Like, I don't even know how to explain it. It doesn't make any sense. It was so infuriating. Know that it was... It was just ugh. a total mess up. And so Spencer tweeted this that was mimicking a drill tweet. Uh, hopefully people listening who drill is. And it just read, Ferrari budget, car, $100 million, engineers, $30 million, logistics, $75 million, pit strategy, $4, coffee, $40 million. Someone who is good at F1, please help me budget this. My race team is dying. <laughs> and I loved this so much that I took the time to explain the drill tweet to Aaron so that I could then read this tweet to him so that we could <laughs> laugh about the bad pit strategy that Ferrari had after we watched that. And now we're going to pivot to a section that we might call, you know, a part of the show we might call Make Me Care. You know, we care a lot about sports as critical as we are, and there's so much going on right now. So sometimes with my co-hosts, I just want to hear more from them about what they're watching. And so I'm going to start with Amira and ask, what do you have your eyeballs on right now? The NCAA Division One softball tournament. So last week was, of course, qualification. And then this weekend, we saw Arizona, Florida, Northwestern, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Oregon State, Texas, and UCLA qualified. It's a double elimination tournament, which means lots of chaos. It's like double the dose of chaos. You have to lose two games to um, get out of the tournament. So if you lose the first game, you still get to play again. Um, and then today, we're recording this on Monday. Today is like an ultimate day of chaos. The last four teams standing right now are uh, Oklahoma, UCLA, Oklahoma State, and Texas. So both Oklahoma and Oklahoma State are the top two seeds, and they both went undefeated through the weekend, which means they have to lose twice to be out. So we could have two games today. We could have four games today. Um, if Oklahoma, who's playing UCLA, loses that first game, they get a half an hour break and then they play a second game right on the heels of that game uh, to see who advances to the final. Oklahoma State and Texas will play this evening. Same scenario exists. Out of these four teams, Texas is the only unranked team here, having a bit of a Cinderella run. But out of all of these teams, I really want to make sure we talk about Oklahoma. So I start by asking you guys, have you heard anything about Oklahoma softball this season? I feel like ESPN's really been pumping this program up. So I know that they have like an astonishing record. They do have astonishing record. And I and I should say ESPN's coverage of the entire tournament has increased. Lindsay has a great Power Plays newsletter out now about their ESPN softball coverage with ESPN VP Meg Arnowitz, uh, where they do a Q&A about the behind-the-scenes road to get this kind of historic coverage. Um, the games that are played today will be the first time college softball is played on network TV, both games airing on ABC. 
Um, so absolutely, you might have seen something about Oklahoma on ESPN properties because they are getting more coverage. In fact, they just were on the cover of SI as well. Um, SB Nation has a profile of their dominance, um, and they are, in fact, one of the most dominant teams in history. So if you like dominance, right, they are absolutely out of this world. Um, they host a win percentage of 0.965. Their record this year is 55 and 2. <laughs> Why are they so good? Do they have players or is this like a phenomenal coach or like... Did they abide by Title IX in 1973? <laughs> <laughs> so they have long, you know, it's a historic program. So they have had that for yeah, their advantage. I know that they've been good for... A long a while. time. But this year, one of the things that helps them is that their batting average is 0.69. They have three members of their lineup batting better than a 400. And they have three players who are in the top 15 in home runs. They are absolutely an offensive juggernaut, which is one of the things leading them to victory. In uh-huh. fact, 35 of their 55 wins have been by the mercy rule. <gasps> um, the mercy rule is invoked when you're up by more than eight runs after the fifth inning. And if you look at some of these most dominant wins, you'll see why. They beat, for instance, Santa Barbara 14-0 after five innings. Texas Tech, they were up 21-0 after five innings. That's a football score. Yeah, and then in May, they beat Texas A&M 20-0 after five innings. Um, so, you know, there's like a, somebody at SB Nation crunched it and said you have a 61% chance, not of just being beaten by Oklahoma, but being mercy ruled by them. Rash. <laughs> That's wow. the type of dominance we're talking about. So it's absolutely an offensive driven team, but their defense is really stout as well. And if you're asking what still motivates a team that has lodged 55, now 56 wins, they those two losses they're really hanging on to <laughs> one of their two losses oh, was a 4-2 upset at the hands of Texas they snapped the Sooners at that point 40 game winning streak apparently this made Oklahoma very mad and in the tournament this weekend Texas faced Oklahoma again and Oklahoma beat them 7 to 2 and uh Jocelyn Allo who's their all-star player who is only the I think first person in D1 history to have three straight seasons of 30 plus home runs after beating Texas this weekend she was like we were really fueled by that loss in April <laughs> oh my god that's like really intense in terms of like statistics i'm still absorbing like all of that information um and how petty and competitive they really are like they're just like I love that they're just like forget it like not once do we should we even expect to lose (laughs) do you think it like where's all this money going for these deals like this ABC and ESPN and stuff like that yeah that's a great question well I have to say so we If we all recall, softball has been a steadily growing, if not the fastest growing revenue sport for a while. So there has been a lot of money flushed into this sport. Um, But I think it's the same thing with like this, the ESPN media rights deals. We know, right, it doesn't go to the athletes. We know that first and foremost. Um, And so you have a lot of the money going, of course, to the conferences and then um, all of the regular NCA mess. But I think it's really interesting because I think we're still in the phase of reporting around this, which is the cycle of this is historic. We haven't seen this before. And I think we have yet to move to the point where we have that kind of same critical lens on it because it's mm-hmm. new, but I think it's coming. And there's a lot of great softball 
coverage out there. I want to shout out Seven Innings, this ESPN podcast, which transitioned into a show for this. Um, they have a wonderful team, including Beth Moens and Michelle Smith, Jessica Mendoza. So I think that, you know, they have a lot of coverage and a lot of reporters dedicated to softball now that will start to kind of see the effects of this. But it's the 40th, I think, anniversary of the first College World Series for softball. Hmm. And so I think there's a lot of people reflecting on how much growth has happened. And I think the next step is exactly right, Brenda, is to be like, all right, so what does this mean now that we have the coverage? The audience has been steady growing. This was the most watched season, not just the final season. It's not just moving into that space, but it's setting a blueprint, right, for women's college sports, especially in terms of media coverage. So at this point, Amira, you told us about Oklahoma. So it's obviously theirs to lose, I yes. think is probably fair. But so is it is Oklahoma State the next bet? Like if Oklahoma doesn't win, is that who we should expect to win? Which is wild to think that their in-state rival would also be their national rival. Yes, absolutely. Oklahoma State is the only other team that has beaten them. Um, and so Oklahoma faces off against UCLA, right? We got a lot of coverage this year of Maya Brady, Tom Brady's niece mm, right yes. full of black girl magic she's tremendous so ucla is a fifth seed they're playing oklahoma they'll see if they can upset beat them twice <laughs> beat them twice which is a beating Good them once is a tall UCLA. order so beating them twice <laughs> is hard but oklahoma state does face texas which is a really interesting matchup both of those teams are the only two teams that have beaten oklahoma this year and so i would stand to think um that whatever team advances from that matchup um, is at least in a position where they can say they have done it before. I would have to say Oklahoma State is, of course, the favorite to do that. They also didn't went undefeated this past weekend. So not only are they rested, but they can drop a game and still be in position to get to the final. But they probably want to not drop a game against Texas so they can go up against Oklahoma, yeah. both undefeated. Yeah, exactly. Texas beat uh, UCLA. The beginning of the tournament, they went through Arizona. They went through a lot of big teams as an unranked team. They had a really disastrous loss at the beginning of the year. That was kind of like a humiliating tournament run to kick off the season that turned a lot of heads. And everybody said, what has become of this program? This is Kat Osterman's program, right? Um, they weren't gelling together. I follow their TikToks. They are absolutely bonded now. Um, and it's showing up on the pitch. And so... Um, I wouldn't count them out, but we are in for either a two-game or a four-game or three-game treat today, and certainly looks like uh, I would take an OK State-Oklahoma final. I think it would be fascinating. Oh, now I'm all excited. Uh, that's all it takes for me is my co-host talking for like all of 30 seconds about any sport, you know, much less um, some minutes. So I am excited about horse racing. I love this for you, Brent. <laughs> It's so silly. Um, it's the things that you like um, in life. So funny. Um, basically, there's no shot at a triple crown this year. The three races, the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and Belmont Stakes are what makes the triple crown for people who aren't super into horse racing already. Um, the first two races, the Kentucky Derby and Preakness, have already been run. But this weekend, so the Saturday, June 11th, 
is Belmont Steaks in Elmont, New York. And I am really excited about it because actually like there's something cool in like a triple crown and wanting them to win, but there's also something really cool in just having no idea what's going to happen. Um, and I can tell you why I care about it a little bit. I mean, last season, if you remember, uh, there was the big doping cases involving Kentucky Derby winner Medina Spirit, the horse that surprisingly won and then tested positive for the banned substance betamethasone. We did a whole episode on that exactly a year ago, actually, on Burn It All Down. And I'm very sad to report that at three and a half years old, Medina Spirit died um, of a heart attack this past year after a workout. It is unclear if it was related to any substance in his body. The um, autopsy, which is called a necropsy or something with horses, it's it's got a slightly different name, didn't come back um, definitive. So that's obviously been um, very upsetting to lots of people um, in this community. And this community, doing that episode, I realized how sort of drama-filled this community really is. Um, and so since I got all wrapped up in that world, I've just started following it with a lot more intensity. Um, I just want to say that there's still hundreds of horse deaths from racing every year um, in qualifying for these. It's gotten better, you know, since last year and the year before and the way in which there's been some scrutiny and some regulations, but it's certainly not perfect. So just really quickly, Kentucky Derby won by Rich Strike. That was an 80 to 1 odds. That's because Rich Strike wasn't supposed to be in the race at all. It comes off of a scratch, which there's whole glossaries. And what this means is like one horse didn't run. So Rich Strike wasn't supposed to be in there. It's a really ironic and perfect name. You couldn't write it any better. Um, but then strangely, Rich Strike's owner decided not to enter him into Preakness. And so hmm. at that point, then there's no triple crown. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that he needed to rest him. And I have big air quotes because, I mean, remember that these are like very young horses that typically don't really want to be rested. Hmm. And on top of all that, like it, it seems uh, very contrary to what we've seen from owners and their relationship to their horses. Why have a racing horse if you're not? <laughs> That's very interesting. It's very interesting. It almost feels like really interesting. So we will just sit back and wait and see if anything comes out about that. That horse was um, jockeyed by Venezuelan Sonny Leon. And I just want to say all these jockeys come from these particular places in Latin America. Will I write a chapter on it in my next book? Um, probably. It is a fascinating thing. Um, so this Venezuelan jockey had never ridden a horse. So that's that. He had never what? A he had never ridden a horse. No, ridden a horse in this stake. Sorry, oh, in this okay. like in in like this category, like he's never done a ride like that. I was like, I'm gonna need a little bit more on that. Like, no, no, no. Yeah, that would be amazing. Good point. So this horse that was only in because of a scratch had a jockey who had never run a race at this level before, right? And won the Kentucky Derby and then didn't run the Preakness and didn't run the Preakness. <laughs> and here's the wild okay. thing: is that. Is that like Joe Drape at the New York Times who we interviewed for that episode and all of these other experts, Melissa Hopper, um, who also writes with him, were like, you know, one of the reasons that this horse even won is it was a perfect ride. Ah. So Sunny Leon, you know, this Venezuelan rider who had 
yes, ridden a horse before, but never at this level. Thank you, Amira, for correcting that. (laughs) Did this perfect ride. And so that's partly why Rich Strike is actually not the favorite going into Belmont Stakes. Okay. So he is back for Belmont with the same jockey. Well, they never, you never really know for sure with the jockeys, but probably. So that's part Hmm. of the drama, right? That's drama. Yeah, and they're and like a lot of these jockeys are related to each other. Ooh, like, give me family drama. Oh yeah, they're brothers. They get like picked at the last minute. You know what? I have an idea. Yes, because obviously me and Jess got into Formula One because of Drive to Survive. So clearly Netflix needs to do a ride yes. to survive. Yes, I feel like you didn't appreciate that pun as much as I wanted. I do. I am. Okay, I'm you. saying yeah. How could I more emotively <laughs> respond? I think it's an amazing idea. I think that, you know, I'm your person if you want to deeply delve into the history of these Academy of Jockeys. I am fascinated. Like they're Puerto Rican, Venezuelan, Nicaraguan, Mm, the Dominican Republic also has a key one. So, and, and when I asked last year in our episode, why are they coming from Latin America? The answer was they're shorter there, which is just untrue and racist. (laughs) like I'm very short for people who don't know and I most definitely cannot do this so it's come on um I know they need to be light but well now I care so this worked good (laughs) and yeah I just quickly also want to add that um at Preakness which took place in Baltimore and was won by early voting which another lovely name that we should all be happy about Megan the Stallion did perform. Oh. The Stallion? Yes, that's her name. Horses. I get it. I love it. I love it. Bren, will you tell me will you tell me what happened to Bob, oh, yeah. Bob Baffert? The guy that doped uh Medina Spirit, like is he still around? Yeah. Bob Baffert is your textbook villain throughout all of this. He really is. And has gotten so many different horses, jockeys, owners in trouble um, related to banned substances. He is out of the sport, but only through next year, meaning he'll be able to race horses in the next Mm. triple crown. That is really upsetting to a lot of people. But remember, Sepp Blatter is about to be able to come back and govern FIFA again in like another year and a half. Wow, already? It's like something ridiculous. And so he started out with this big band, then it goes down and down and down. And the thing about horse racing is it's totally governed state by state. So he has like a zillion lawsuits against every state association for banning him. And they have lawsuits against him. And so it's all this litigious nightmare um, with these beautiful horses and their talented jockeys and the people who really take care of them day to day being just kind of victims of this ridiculousness wow this is a lot of drama i wanted to know so i know the triple crown itself is pretty uncommon yeah but i wanted to know how rare it was for it not to even be competed for like how often does a winning horse from one of the early derbies just like Mm -hmm. i mean i could see through like injury but like how wild is it to not have it in play? Yeah, I the last time that a Kentucky Derby winner passed up Preakness was 1985. Oh, I wasn't Whoa. alive. Right. Oh. That makes it even more <laughs> interesting. Thank you. I'm glad you're just as skeptical as I am of that decision. Huh. But uh we shall see. Um yeah, it's it's pretty rare and of course like 
Um, the Triple Crown in general, so these races have been around for, I think these are like the 149th, 155th um, iteration of these races, you know, right around 150 years. And there's only 13 Triple Crown winners. And a lot of people don't appreciate, I think, Secretariat. Who still There's a hold. movie about that. Right. But I mean, like, how many people... No, I just recognized the name. I felt knowledgeable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I feel like not that many people are, like, watching that movie. Um, no, not me. Uh, yeah, exactly. Especially ones not alive in 85. <laughs> I feel like... <laughs> are like not watching it. Um, but Secretariat has the record in all three races and has since 1973. And so in most sports, we look and we say to ourselves, oh, you know, people are getting better and better at this, faster and faster. And this isn't the case in horse racing. And I just want to add one more thing that we learned from that episode. Female horses are not as profitable, but just as fast. And they're being pushed out of the triple crown. Misogyny and ho- horse misogyny. It's horse. It's exactly horseogyny. Exactly, and because they can't go around spreading their sperm a thousand times, that they have to actually, you know, full these horses, and they can only do that so many times in their lives. They are not as expensive, and thus they are not run, even though they are often faster. So we aren't even seeing necessarily the fastest horses in the world. We are seeing the fastest male horses in the world. And anyway, you hate to call a horse a goat, but the Secretariat is a fascinating story. 1973 was the record. Horse a goat. I know, right? (laughs) We are full of puns today. (laughs) Okay. Um, So thank you so much for putting up with that. Horseplay. That was um, fascinating. Oh no. Oh, I have so much. It's so bad. It's so bad. I it's so bad. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that was good. Oh no. Okay. Let's go back to people sports. And we're gonna talk uh, with one of our resident tennis experts, Jessica. The French Open. Yeah, it ended yesterday as of this recording Aww. so it was a fun fortnight um you have to use that word when you talk about tennis. Fortnite. that's how i know what a fortnight is because <laughs> i love tennis really excited for coco golf she made the final for the women's tournament which was her first grand slam final massive breakthrough for her she's only 18 years old she also made the women's doubles final she was a runner-up in both of them uh and she you could tell how upset she was to have lost that match to Iga Schwantek, which is like, it was Iga's to lose. This woman is incredible. Schwantek beat her 6-1-6-3 in just over an hour, which is a route. Um, but it was Iga's second major title, so her second time winning the French Open. But it was her 35th straight victory this year. She now has tied Venus Williams for the longest WTA winning streak of this millennium. She hasn't lost a match. Since the middle of February, and it is early June. This is bonkers. She took over the number one ranking in April. So when you play all these different tournaments, this will come back in a little bit, you earn points the further up you go in the tournament. And you have to then defend those points the next year. Uh, So if she's going to have a hell of a time defending this, all these points next year when she comes around. But she took over number one in April, Barty Ash Barty retired. Iga takes over in April. She now has nearly twice as many points as anyone else on the women's side. 
which is just wild. So, I mean, Iga is just out here being phenomenal. And then, of course, we have to mention the great, the goat on clay, uh, Rafael Nadal, this old man who is battling like a chronic foot injury, apparently like would guess that he won this French Open in a lot of pain, (laughs) but he won it. It was his 14th, his 14th French Open, which is like, that's how many Grand Slam titles Pete Sampras had when he held the record for Grand Slam titles in general. Nadal now has 14 just on clay in Paris. He is phenomenal. He beat Casper Ruud, this Norwegian young man, uh, 6-3, 6-0, 6-3, 6-3, 6-0, bageled him in the third set. It was just over two hours. It was, I don't, I don't even know what you say about Rafa Nadal at this point in time. Um, but the important thing is he beat Djokovic on the way there and now holds the overall Grand Slam title record at 22, which is two more than both Federer and uh, Novak. So we like that. <laughs> I just want to interrupt because I was on the phone with you the other day and you were like, he is just the best that Clay will ever see in the men's game. So like what makes him so good on that surface? Yeah, well, he apparently I had to look this up so I would get it right because I'm not so great on all the technicality stuff. But apparently he has this incredible forehand And then he has just like, he's so good on clay. Like if you watch him move, movement is everything in tennis, right? Um, He can just move on clay. He slides really well on clay. Uh, And one of the things about clay is that it attaches to the ball as you're playing. So it actually will slow the play down. And Nadal is able to use that to get in position in order to use his forehand, which is incredibly accurate. And he does this thing where he like hooks his arm when he does it, it just, I don't even know how to explain sort of what it looks like, but he can get the ball to spin. And also, he's a lefty. And there are very, very few lefties in tennis. So Federer became very famous for uh, hiring left-handed tennis players to practice against in order to try to beat Nadal on all the different surfaces, including clay. Uh, so the ball spins differently when you play Nadal because it's spinning in a different direction. And so kind of all of that combined has just made him... He is just the best. I, we will never see. I don't think we'll ever see anyone like this again. So at the time where we have folks like Rafa, like still here being great. The olds. We have the olds. <laughs> we also have the teens. There's so many teenagers who are like, good. Why? why? <laughs> I don't, I mean, historically on the women's side, there's always been a bunch of teens, right? I think the women's game in general tends to skew young when you think about it. It feels different right now because we have Sarita and Venus and some older ladies hanging around. But in general, uh, you know, Coco made it to the final this year as an 18-year-old. Layla Fernandez made it to the quarterfinals. Everyone will remember that Canadian sensation. I think she's 19. But we also saw it on the men's side, which there was the French Open had a blog post that was like, Day nine diary. Sissy Poss vows payback against teens because <laughs> like the men's side has <laughs> these teenagers. So it was Holger Rune who went on to play Casper Rude, which must have been terrible to listen to. I didn't actually watch that match. Um, but Rune, That would have been impossible. <laughs> I know. But Rune is only 19 and he's the one who beat Sissy Poss in the fourth round. And when he did that, he then joined 
his fellow 19-year-old, this like phenom that everyone is so interested in right now, Carlos Alcaraz, uh, who also made the quarterfinals. People thought if Nadal couldn't do it this year, that it would actually be Carlos Alcaraz, this other Spaniard, who would be the one to be able to take this title, which would be incredible on the men's side. You just don't see teenagers like that. So I don't know if it's just where the men's game is at this point that we are finally seeing what will happen once the big four all retire, which is Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and Murray. And there is just kind of a hole there. And it's, it is really fascinating to see these, these teenagers coming up. It's, it just makes you very excited for like where the future of tennis is going. So my second question is like, so one of the things that happened, right, were a huge disparity in scheduling, particularly night matches. Um, and I wonder if you had thoughts. <laughs> Jessica's face said, yes, I have thoughts. Well, it was a bummer because Amelie Maresma was the, is the tournament director this year, is this famous female French player. She coached Murray for a little bit, which was a big deal that Murray had a female coach. Uh And so she was the one in charge of deciding who was going to do these night matches. And she said, quote, in this era that we are in right now, I don't feel and as a woman, former women's tennis player, I don't feel bad or unfair saying that right now you have more appeal is what she's talking about, that the men's game has more appeal. Uh, And it was actually Swantek who came out and said that she was disappointed and surprised that Moresmo would actually like say this out loud. To which then, of course, Moresmo had to Moresmo had to apologize. She says that her quote was taken out of the wider context and that she feels bad that she said this, but then gave this like really weird answer, which I would imagine is the actual pressure for tournament directors, but said, because we have one match only, the ticket holders, I feel that it's really tougher to schedule a women's match because we have to take into consideration the length of the match, I feel. I feel that... It's the fair kind of thing to do for the ticket holders. So the men play longer matches. And so the ticket holders deserve to have longer matches, apparently, is what Moresmo was saying. Um, it makes me, it bums me out. It bums me out that it came from a woman. It bums me out to hear her talk about women's tennis this way. And this is not a problem just with the French Opens. Like this kind of inequity and in gender scheduling at the Grand Slams happens a lot. So it just shows you sort of how on surface the sexism can be in, in this sport. And it just continues to like rear its head. This weekend, we saw a lot of sporting events as we have in the last few months with expressions of solidarity with Ukraine. Did we see that in the French Open? Yeah, we saw a huge one, actually. Um, So Iga Swiatek is Polish. And Poland has obviously taken in now at this point millions, over something close to 4 million refugees from the Ukraine. And so Iga played the final. She had a ribbon on her hat. And I thought, oh, that's nice. And then she did her speech after winning. And this is how she ended it. I wanted to, at the end, um, say something to Ukraine to stay strong because the world is still there. And since my first speech in Doha, basically, I was hoping that when I'm going to do the next one, um, the situation is going to get better, but I'm still going to, you know, have hopes and try to support. So thank you, guys, and see you next year. You know, the crowd was very righteous about it and like clapped for a very long time uh, in response to those comments. But yeah, it was really powerful. Um, The French open did not, they allowed Russian players to play, but they would not actually put, they would not allow flags. Um, 
They wouldn't play the anthem for them. Like they tried to limit the Russianness of it, even though the Russian players were there. I will say on this front, the most interesting thing is about to happen, which is Wimbledon. It's taking place starting on June 27th, so end of the month. Wimbledon announced a while ago that they would not allow Russian and Belarusian players to be at Wimbledon. And this was hugely controversial. And so at the very beginning of the French Open, the ATP, the WTA, and the ITF, which are the tours and the overall organization for international tennis, announced they were upset at Wimbledon for this decision and in response would not be rank- giving anyone ranking points for playing at Wimbledon, which I cannot <laughs> express how major this is. Wimbledon responded by saying they were disappointed in the tours, but they're a British institution and Britain has decided to do everything in its power to put Russia on its back foot. And so they're going to stick to their guns. But this means that both, I mean, Naomi Osaka, Iga Schwantek, they have said they may not play. Wimbledon, if they cannot get ranking points, you know, people already disagreed with Wimbledon's decision. And now the idea that you will not get points for playing there has made Wimbledon an exhibition match. It's wild. It is wild. It is such a huge, huge decision on the part of the tours. And so we have no idea at this point who's going to show up to Wimbledon, what they're going to say about Ukraine, about Russia any of it. It's going to be super fascinating in the tennis world when we get to what is arguably the biggest event (laughs) every single year for that sport. Wow. Like one of the first Russian athletes to speak out against the war was Andrei Rublev, who is a top 10 Russian tennis player. And he won a thing and they write on the camera after they win in whatever tournament he was at. He wrote like no war, like immediately after the invasion. So I know it it will be very fascinating when we get there. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This week, I interview LA Times sports editor Ileana Limon Romero the first Latina to head a newspaper of records sports section about how she got where she is and how having diverse voices in the newsroom changes the way that we tell the most important stories. I do not let my friends and allies, older white male journalists or, you know, white women or fellow women who are non-black journalists, non-queer journalists, all of those, like we don't get to opt out of the conversation. It's not that we're not covering those topics. You have an obligation. It shouldn't just be like, oh, you're the Latinx journalist. You're just covering all the Latinx issues. We're just going to put it over there. 
not doing that. Although you do bring a powerful voice, um, nobody gets to opt out of the conversation of accurately and fully representing the community that you're in. But inherently, based on your experiences, you decide who you interview, you decide the questions that you ask, you decide the framing of those questions. And even well-intended people who don't come from diverse backgrounds don't understand how to ask that array of questions or how to connect and relate and put person people in positions to feel comfortable to truly share their stories. And now it's everybody's favorite part of the show, the burn pile, where we take all of the things that have made us angry in sports for this week and put them on a metaphorical for now burn pile where we can set them ablaze. I am going to start because I have a petty burn, and my petty burn is Christian Pulisic, U.S. men's national player, and he had a really nice assist this week. Uh, It goes around Twitter, his kind of takedown of this ball. uh, It's very good. He's a very solid player um, of the sport of soccer. And when interviewed about the game, this was against Morocco, when interviewed, uh, people were like, hey, what's it like being back in the U.S.? They say America, but again, high imperialism. They say, what's it like being back in the U.S. and playing for U.S. audiences? And he says, you know, I guess for whoever's here, it's good. But numerically, there weren't many people here, and I don't know why. Okay, so I want to burn his reaction. There are a ton of amazing U.S. men's national team fans that they do not deserve, okay? And to then say that about them, like, really makes me mad. Trust me, I fight with these people all the time about the U.S. men's team, and they defend their team. They show up in wide numbers. U.S. Soccer Federation has made men's matches prohibitively expensive in places that are prohibitive to get to, with very poor public transportation, not every time. Hi, Austin, you're coming up. But, um, you know, much of the time. And on top of it, these poor saps love you. They do. I don't know why, but they do. And so how ungracious to get up there and say that you are disappointed in them. You didn't even make the last fucking World Cup. So what about that? And you're in the easiest confederation in existence with the most amount of support. So please. These are great fans. Appreciate them and stop whining Christian Pulisic. I want to burn his reaction to his fans. Burn. Burn. Brenda in defense of the U.S. men's soccer team. They're fans. Fans. They're fans. They're fans. <laughs> Amira. Okay. Hi. Buckle up. I have a try burn of people who I want to shut the fuck up. Okay. I want to start with Hersha Walker, former NFL player, now inexplicably Senate candidate in Georgia, running off with Reverend Raphael Warnock, of course. There are so many things that I want Herschel Walker to stop talking about. But most recently, of course, was gun violence. Uh, He rambled on and on. Nothing he says is coherent. It's awful. We've been through this already. I can't, my brain literally cannot function dealing with this ineptitude again. Um, Most recently with his response to gun violence was like, we have to get back into prayer. And then he rambled for a little bit and he was like, look, Cain killed Abel. So this is all because people won't let us pray anymore. None of it makes any sense. It's a disaster. But if you heard his answers on anything else, like for instance, the mist that he says cures COVID, 
then you would know this is just right up his alley. He also won't show up to debate. He's ghosted on five different debates. A super PAC and or his campaign were like giving out gas coupons in Georgia, which by the way is illegal for votes. But probably the thing that I hate most about Herschel Walker's candidacy is that it means that it gives his son, Christian Walker, this huge platform. And if you don't know Christian Walker and now you do, I'm sorry. He's a huge TikTok following. He's basically, in his words, not gay. He just likes men. Um, But he spends most of his time on TikTok making TikToks about Black people and gay people being terrible. His One of his favorite lines is, you have your rights, so shut up. He's ranting right now about Pride Month. I just want all of the walkers right now to just like go away and be quiet. But joining him over there, of course, is uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida. Most recently, uh, he used his honorary seat on the Special Olympic Committee and hosting the Special Olympics in Orlando to threaten $27.5 million in fines to the Special Olympics for their vaccination and masking requirements for the Special Olympics. Again, Special Olympics include many people who are immunocompromised, many people who are more susceptible to uh, effects from COVID. And here you have a governor threatening $27.5 million in fines to Special Olympics. Special Olympics conceded, dropped a lot of their vaccination mandates along with some masking stuff, saying they want to play, they don't want to fight. Um, So if you're keeping score, here's a governor who has gone after books, gone after saying gay, gone after trans youth, gone after Disney World, gone after the Special Olympics, and also denied funding for a spring training facility for the Tampa Bay Rays, Coincidentally, right after they spoke out and donated money to gun violence uh, and gun reform organizations. But those Tampa Bay Rays do make an appearance on wrapping up the three groups of people who I want to shut the fuck up. Because the Rays just hosted Pride Night, which was a wildly successful event. It netted 3,000 more fans through their Pride celebrations and their regular games. They wore patches, had uh, flags, etc. But not everybody on the Tampa Bay Rays opted into this, and it was made an opt-in decision. In fact, pitchers, five of them, opted out of wearing the patch. Uh, Jason Adams, Jalen Beeks, Brooks Rowley, Jeffrey Springs, and Ryan Thompson. Um, that alone joins a long list of people opting out of pride jerseys and things like that always is eye roll inducing. It's always ridiculous, but it's their statement. That's particularly galling. Adam speaking on behalf of all of these pitcher dudes, um, said it's a faith-based decision in this grumbled statement said, ultimately we want them to know they're all welcome and loved here. But when we put it on our bodies, I think a lot of guys decided it's a lifestyle that maybe not that they look down on or anybody or think differently. It's just that we don't want to encourage it because we believe in Jesus. It's not judgmental, though. They want you to know that. Then somehow in that word vomit, circle back to say, but again, we love these men and women. We care about them and we want them to feel safe and welcome here. It's appalling that we're still having these lifestyle conversations. It's appalling that you put out a statement so chocked full of stereotypes, inaccuracies, straight out homophobia, and then call it based on your faith. All of this is just galling. From Herschel Walker, from Governor DeSantis, to these five pitchers on the Tampa Bay Rays, and this word vomit statement, I just want everybody to shut the fuck up. Please, it hurts my brain. Burn. 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 That's a very high flames. Jessica, take us home. 
So last week, the Ohio House passed a bill that I can barely bring myself to talk about, forget that it could become law in the state. The bill, a horrific evolution in the anti-trans sports bills that we've discussed repeatedly on the show, would ban transgender girls from playing on girls and women's sports teams in grade schools, state institutions of higher ed, and private colleges. If the bill becomes law, it would take precedence over all current policies by high school and college sports associations in the state. Beyond that, though, there's this shit in the bill, and I'm going to literally quote the bill here. If a participant's sex is disputed, the participant shall establish the participant's sex by presenting a signed physician statement indicating the participant's sex based upon the following. One, the participant's internal and external reproductive anatomy. Two, the participant's normal endogenously produced levels of testosterone. Three, an analysis of the participant's genetic makeup. If that sounds like sex testing on children, that's because that's what that would be. This fucking bill is, of course, named the Save Women's Sports Act. According to Equality Ohio and the Ohio High School State Athletic Association, there is only one transgender athlete in the entire state who is participating in high school sports at this moment. That is out of more than 350,000 high school students in Ohio. One. We all know very well which girls will be most likely to be questioned on their gender. The ones who win. Black and brown girls. Those who present as more masculine or whose muscles are too big. And of course, as the bill intends, ones that people suspect are non-binary, intersex, or trans. In 2016, the New York Times ran an article about Duty Chand, an intersex female runner from India who underwent sex testing in 2014 after she did well in competitions, and according to the Times, that, quote, prompted competitors and coaches to tell the Federation that her physique seemed suspiciously masculine. I'm now going to describe what Chand underwent in the sex testing, and I will just say this is incredibly upsetting to hear. So just here we go. Shortly after receiving a letter saying that she needed to do a, quote, gender verification test, quote, Chan says she was sent to a private hospital in Bangalore where a curt woman drew her blood to measure her level of natural testosterone, though Chan had no idea what that was what was being measured. Chan also underwent a chromosome analysis, an MRI, and a gynecological exam that she found mortifying. To evaluate the effects of high testosterone, the International Athletic Association's protocol involves measuring and palpitating the clitoris vagina, and labia, as well as evaluating breast size and pubic hair scored on an illustrated five-grade scale. That's horrific to imagine happening to an 18-year-old, which Chand was at that time. This Ohio bill could force this on young girls. We're talking about like 11-year-olds who will have to undergo sex testing in order to compete. This is all in the name of protecting women's sports. The people who say they are doing this to protect girls and women in sport are willing to literally serve up the bodily autonomy and the bodies of cis girls and women in order to possibly catch and punish a trans girl or woman who is just trying to play a fucking game. It's a great reminder that these legislators and everyone else supporting these anti-trans sports bills, they don't actually care about girls or women or girls and women's sports. They just happen to hate them a little bit less than they hate people who push on the gender binary. If you are at all on the side of telling trans girls that they cannot compete in sport. You are on the side of these people whose logical end is sex testing these children. 
It's disgusting. It's immoral. It's unethical. And I fucking hate it so much. The measure next goes to the Senate in Ohio after lawmakers return from their summer recess. That might not be until November. So there is time here. There is time to lobby hard in Ohio against the state-sanctioned child abuse that they are asking for. But we're going to start today by burning this. So burn. 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 Well, one solve on these types of things is to think about those who are making changes for the better. So let's try to phoenix from the ash here and uh, celebrate some of the torchbearers from this week. Jessica, who has really shown up for the French Open? Yeah, we have so many people that did so well. Congratulations mm-hmm. to the winners on the men's and women's singles tournaments. Of course, we've mentioned them already. Iga Schwantek and Rafael Nadal. But also Caroline Garcia and Christina Mladanovic, two French women, won their second doubles title together at Roland Garros. Marcelo Arevalo of El Salvador became Central America's first Grand Slam champion ever when he won the men's doubles with his partner Jean Roger. Wesley Kulhoff and Anna Shabahara, a former UCLA Bruin, won the mixed doubles title. I love their story. They paired up after Kulhoff sent Shabahara a DM on Instagram and was like, hey, do you want to pair up in Paris? And so this was their first tournament together, and they won. Didi de Groot won her seventh consecutive Grand Slam women's wheelchair singles title, while Shingo Cunieta won his 27th singles major in the wheelchair category. De Groot and Anique Van Koot, both of the Netherlands, won the wheelchair women's doubles championship, while British pair, this is like the most British name, it's so adorable, Alfie Hewitt <laughs> and Gordon Reed won the men's doubles and their 10th consecutive Grand Slam crown. Hewitt and Reed, the last time they lost in a Grand Slam was Wimbledon of 2019. Wow. So congratulations <laughs> to all these remarkable athletes. Wow. Amira, who else do we have outside of tennis? Yeah, I got some more torchbearers for you. Minji Lee won the U.S. Women's Open Golf Championships, finishing four strokes ahead of the runner-up. She received $1.8 million for her victory, the largest prize ever in women's golf history. Also, the first paid women's basketball league in Toronto, Hoop Queen Summer League, started this past weekend at Toronto Metropolitan University. It will be four teams comprising 10 players each, and they'll play games every Sunday afternoon through July 3rd. Also, you know we love our spellers in here. San Antonio's own Harini Logan, who is just 14, won the first ever spell-off at the 2022 Scripps National Spelling Bee contest. For the spell-off, they had to spell as many words as they could correctly in 90 seconds. It's It was wild to watch. Go watch it if you haven't seen it. Harini spelled 21 out of 26 words right to win. And Lucas McEnany won the Buffalo Marathon with a time of 2 hours, 33 minutes, and 29 seconds, which would be impressive all by itself, but he did it pushing his 2-year-old son Sutton in a stroller for the full 26.2 miles. He was trying to set the world record for pushing a stroller during the marathon, but he missed out on it by only about 2 minutes. Sutton, for his part, slept through most of the race. Congratulations to both Lucas and Sutton. Oh, I love that one. Uh, can I have a drum roll, please? Our torchbearer of the week goes to Cat Craig. 
who won the Integrity and Impact Award at last month's Sports Industry Awards for her role in the evacuation of women Afghan athletes, particularly soccer players and others, as Kabul fell to the Taliban. Craig asked, actually, that the Afghan women's team founder, Kalita Popple, who's been on the show, be awarded the honor, but Popple explained to Craig that she had, in fact, nominated her. Craig <laughs> described herself as not a terribly athletic, nerdy lawyer. Uh, she has, however, founded a community-owned football club uh, with her partner called Camden and Islington United. And I absolutely loved her quote uh, about rescuing the Afghani women athletes. Quote, it won't always work, but we'll all give it a go. And if any team can do it, I believe our team can. This comes from trying to fight impossible odds and not being reckless, but not being so afraid of failure that it paralyzes you and prevents you from trying. That is a lesson that the sports industry needs to learn. End of quote. I couldn't agree more. Congratulations to human rights lawyer Kat Craig. Okay, and in trying times, we like to celebrate what's good in our world every week and talk a little bit about that. Jessica, start us off. I feel like mine is all, I've watched so much television (laughs) recently, so just go with it. Great Pottery Throwdown on HBO Max is Almost the exact same format as the Great British Bake Off, except Mm. they're doing pottery. So it has all the same warm, fuzzy feels and like amazing revelations at the end. And everyone loves everyone else. And uh, I just love it. And there's this male judge who cries whenever someone perseveres through something that they find difficult or he thinks the pottery is so beautiful. He cries about it. We watched uh, season two of Hacks which is just the very best show. Gene Smart deserves all the things in the world. Season two is remarkable and is hilarious. And Laurie Metcalf does the most amazing short cameo as tour manager named Weed. It's, oh God, it's wonderful. Um, and the other thing, Aaron deeply loves Stranger Things. So we watched season four. It was my favorite one since season one. I liked it a whole lot, even though I was distracted by how old all the kids are because they're like way too old for what they're playing at this point in the storyline. But Kate Bush's running up a hill is prominent in this season. And all the young kids out there are hearing it for the first time. And so it pushed its number one, like on all the streaming services, because it's a magic, beautiful, perfect song. And so all the all the young people now are in love with it. And so that that is good. Yeah. I finally understand your tweet because Samari said, mom, you don't know my favorite song, so you would not be able to save me. And I was like, is this a Stranger Things thing? And she's like, yeah. I was like, oh, that's what Jessica was tweeting about. Yes. You have to know. Um, so one of that's part of what's happening with Kate Bush in the in the show is that her song helps save someone from demonic possession. And I was very relieved that Aaron knew what my song would be, which is Closer to Fine by the Indigo Girls. So... He could save my life if that if it comes down to it. Mira, um, it was Amira's birthday. Andrew's birthday. birthday. <laughs> Happy it was birthday! My birthday, thank you. And Chess's birthday. Um, Jessica made Happy me Formula birthday. One cookies. Oh, they are so cute, and they're trophy themed. I bought a trophy cookie cutter to make Amira trophy cookies. I have trophy two of them, and they say my name and number one. Although Aaron Luther wanted to as a joke write number two on the trophy i wouldn't do it i would i was oh, like she no. will not think that is funny <laughs> oh no 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 i might think that's funny but amira oh i'm glad they know you i would not 
So yeah, so they were delicious. Um, and it was super cute and, and lovely to have that. I spent most of my weekend being an Uber driver for my kids and solo parenting, um, which was not as fun. But Samari is wonderful. And we went to lunch together. And then we did an escape room at 1155 while it was still my birthday. And we escaped and they were so impressed with our communication and positive reinforcement and how fast we got out of their room with only a 10% chance of escape. And it was just the two of us. And it made me really proud of her because she's a really cool kid. So, and I did that. So my other, what's good is my formula one romance novels that Jessica put into my life. And I've just been in those worlds. Ransom. K-A-T Ransom. That's her name. Yes. If you're looking for That him. has been what I did for most of the weekend. <laughs> and oh, last thing. I'm really excited because I'll be heading to Houston next weekend to celebrate my baby sister's birthday, but also to see um, Sam Coffey, who is uh, a former student, dear friend, who plays for the Portland Thorns because they will be coming in to play the Dash. Um, and I'm very excited. And the oh, Dash are on nice. the run. It should be a good game. Very nice. My um, what's good is hate watching Top Gun Maverick. Um, sorry, Shireen, who actually thought it was a good movie. Um, she can come on and debate that. It's as horrible as the first one. It's, you know, the most racist, sexist fantasy of old white dudes who are like, who really believes? And people will be like, oh, Brenda, you just have to suspend your reason and watch movies. And it's like, you know, shut up. Um, I do not. Okay, this is a white fantasy, a white dude fantasy. You're telling me someone in their mid-50s, I'm the oldest person on the show, is more suited to fly a billion-dollar plane in terms of hand-eye coordination, vision, and ability to sustain G-force than the best six fighter pilots that are 22. You're just stupid. I love that this is Brenda's What's Good is <laughs> shitting on I'm, Top Right, gun. right. <laughs> I just fuck that movie. Like, and I like what? how today like, she's like enthusiastically hate watching what's good. And let me tell you all the ways I hate Yeah, it. and the number one movie in America is why we don't have gun control. Oh, good point. The theme of the entire movie is I can be a white savior and I am diehard. And the theme is, dad, talk to me. Talk to me. Think. Don't think. You're thinking. Just do. Just do. Stop thinking. That is the point of the movie. And like, I felt like, yup, this is Reagan. I am back in Reagan's America. Don't think, just do. I'm in a Nike commercial. Where am I? Nowhere that can think hard enough to pass gun regulation. So it's a terrible movie. I'm glad it's terrible. I'm glad I couldn't get sucked in. It proves to me that I'm just as smart as I was in 1986. Though I could not fight a fighter pilot jet thing as good as I could then. Ah! Go and see it, but please be like critical. I enjoyed watching it. I was laughing so hard, but people next to me thought I was crying, so they weren't mad at me because um, I had my mask on. It's fun to go see because it's just, I like knowing what other people are talking about, even if I'm going to be like the mean person that looks for the dog poop at the picnic and I sit right next to it. Yep, that's me. <laughs> What are we watching this week? As we've discussed, there is a ton of sports. College softball World Series, obviously. Um, the finals. 
Game one is Wednesday, tomorrow, June 8th at 8.30 p.m. Then Thursday, June 9th, 7.30 p.m. Eastern time is game two. Um, game three, if necessary, is 8.30 p.m. on Friday, June 10th. We've already discussed that the Belmont Stakes is June 11th, Saturday, and NBA Finals for our own Amira Rose Davis Go Celtics. That's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. This episode was produced by Tressa Versteg. Shelby Weldon is our web and social media wizard. Burn It All Down is part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Follow Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen, subscribe, and please, please, please rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and TuneIn. For show links and transcripts, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You'll also find link to our, our merch, which is at our bonfire store. And thank you, as always, to our patrons. Your support means the world to us. If you want to become a sustaining donor to our show, visit patreon.com slash burn it all down. I'm Brenda Elsie. On behalf of Jessica Luther and Amira Rose Davis, burn on and not out.